Greetings all and welcome back to the Everyday Hope Podcast. So you guys are going to have to bear with me. I'm in major short timer mode. We have a vacay coming up soon, so if I seem distracted, you know why. Also want to give a big shout out to our friends in southeastern Ontario. Folks who love choring and fishing in Quebec and fending off DJs from upcountry, Verda. Alright, we're in chapter 5 of Revelation. And it's a bit unique because of where it sits. On the surface, it seems like there's not much action in this chapter, but there sure is a lot going on. So we're going to talk about that in this episode. But before we do, I just want to do a little review slash setup. Um, We've talked about how Revelation is an apocalyptic prophecy in the form of a circular letter. And we know that this kind of book has a lot to do with end times, right? And we also know that there are many schools of thought regarding the study of end times. And for Christians, our ideas of the end times are tied up with the idea of the rapture, right? Now, some people believe that the rapture involves all Christians being taken up to heaven before the seven years of tribulation begin. Following the tribulation is the second coming of Christ, which institutes the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. That's one school of thought. Other people agree that the rapture involves all Christians being taken to heaven, but that it happens after some or all of the tribulation. More importantly, they believe that the second coming of Christ occurs at the end of the thousand years. Still others believe that there isn't a literal 1,000 year reign of Christ. That reign is of undetermined length and has been happening since the church was established. They also believe that the rapture isn't exactly what we think it is. Now, it's not our goal here to promote, defend, or contradict any one of these views. The reality is, Revelation doesn't really give us the detailed information necessary to map out the chronology of the end times to that degree. Plus, I don't think getting the right answer in this debate wins you anything. So, instead of arguing one theory or another, we're just going to take a serious look at the text to see what it's telling us about how we navigate this crazy life. We'll talk about what we can know and what we can't know and what all that means to us. So, let's start with some things we can know. Some things we've learned from Revelation. First, it's important to remember that chapters 1 through 3 are not somehow separate. They are part of a single revelation given to John. There's no secret, invisible, the end after chapter 3. And how we interpret these chapters will have a bearing on the rest of the book. It doesn't make sense to interpret chapters 1 through 3 as a letter to the seven churches back then and the rest of Revelation as a vision about our future. The whole book is a circular letter to the churches, And so a circular letter to us too. But it doesn't make sense to interpret this book in a way that would have made no sense to the church in the first two centuries. Now, we also need to remember the messages to the churches. Those messages are telling us what it means to be the church of Jesus in this crazy world. We are called to love, endure, obey, submit, follow, trust, and believe. This is how we are to follow Jesus. And finally, Don't forget the culmination in chapter 4 and that great scene of worship in heaven. Being Christ's church culminates in worship in the presence of the Ancient of Days. This is our future. This is what our eschatology needs to focus on. We get to worship the Lamb and the Ancient of Days before the throne, which is very cool. So, that brings us to chapter 5. But what is chapter 5? Remember I said that that this chapter is a bit unique because of where it is? Well, you can look at chapter 5 in a couple of different ways. For example, you could look at it as an extension of chapter 4. I mean, the scene hasn't changed. The location hasn't changed. 
We're in the same place doing the same thing we were doing in chapter 4. It's deeply connected to the scene of worship in heaven. However, what happens in chapter 5 moves us directly to chapters 6 through 8 and opening the seals on the scroll. So we could look at chapter 5 as the, what, the introduction to the seals? So which is it? Well, I think it makes the most sense to understand chapter 5 as an intentional transition. It continues what was going on in chapter 4 as it preps us for chapter 6. It's the natural bridge in John's vision, and we should read it that way. So what is chapter 5 primarily about? Well, there are three main characters in this chapter, the scroll, the lamb, and the worship in heaven. And I want to talk about each of them to determine what the main focus of chapter 5 really is. And I know this seems weird, but I want to talk about them in reverse order. Hey, my podcast, my rules. Ouch, now I sound like somebody's dad. Well, let's begin with the worship scene. Think about worship for a second. True worship is never the object of itself. What I mean is we don't worship in order to worship. We don't worship for worship's sake. That's phony. Honest worship is the vehicle by which a person's focus is trained entirely on what they're worshiping. But worship itself is never the point. It always points to something else. Think about a rock concert. It's loud, it's smelly, it's crowded, it's hot, and people actually go there. But why? Why would someone subject themselves to that kind of environment on purpose? Well, it's a form of worship. And worship is always focused on the object of worship. It doesn't matter how loud or sweaty it is. Now, the worship in chapter 5 is pretty long. Six of the 14 verses in this chapter are dedicated to that worship, while the other eight have to do with what's actually happening in the chapter. But as much ink as it occupies, it's not the star of the show. What I'm getting at is that if we consider worship as a character in the story, it's definitely not the main character, right? Worship doesn't exist for itself. So we need to focus on the object of that worship. That's worship's purpose. So who or what is the object of the worship in chapter 5, right? Well, it's the lamb. Now, the lamb appears in chapter 5 very suddenly and without any warning. Chapter 4 was all about worshiping the one seated on the throne, the Ancient of Days, God himself. But in chapter 5, the focus is going to shift. In verse 5, John gets a preview to the Lamb. It says, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And we know that both the Lion of Judah and the Root of David are messianic titles. They refer to Messiah. Then we get a full description of the Lamb in verses 6 and 7, which say, Then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, a Lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. Okay, there's a lot going on in these verses, but I want you to focus on seven important details. First, the Lamb is the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, both of which are Messianic titles and titles that point us directly to Jesus Christ himself and tell us exactly who he is. Second, the Lamb is standing among the elders. And we talked about how the 24 elders represent all the saints. Does anyone else find it interesting that the Lamb is standing specifically among the 24 elders, among the saints? The Lamb is pictured standing among the church, with us and among us, our head and our Lord. Third, the lamb is standing as if it had been slaughtered. The lamb was killed and yet it is alive. 
Obviously, the Lamb is Jesus Christ, who was crucified, dead, and buried, and yet rose again on the third day. Fourth, the Lamb has seven horns and seven eyes. Now, we all know that the number seven in Hebrew writing symbolizes completeness and perfection. Horns represent power, and seven horns represent perfect power. And seven eyes represent perfect and complete vision. This is the omnipotent and omniscient one, the very Son of God who sees all and knows all. Fifth, we're told that the horns and the eyes represent the sevenfold Spirit of God, which has gone into all the earth. And we've heard this before. The messages to the seven churches showed us that Jesus possesses the complete and perfect sevenfold Spirit of God. Sixth, the Lamb goes to the throne and takes the scroll from the hand of God. The Lamb is not some meek creature. He is able to boldly approach the throne of God and take the scroll from God's hand. And seventh, and most importantly, the Lamb does nothing else in chapter 5. Did you notice that? The Lamb appears, takes the scroll, and does nothing else. We're told that he is worthy to open it, and we know that he will do that in the following chapters. But in chapter 5, his sole action is to take the scroll. That's it. So, the worship is focused on the Lamb, but it appears that the Lamb is focused on the scroll. So, let's talk about the scroll. Now, other than the fact that the Lamb, Jesus, takes the scroll from God's hand, everything we're told about the scroll in this chapter comes in the first three verses. And, not coincidentally, I think, we learn seven facts about the scroll. First, the scroll is seen in the right hand of the one seated on the throne. Now, the right hand is the power hand. The right side of a person is the place of honor. It's in God's right hand when this all starts. Second, the scroll is described as having writing on the front and behind. And I want you to understand the original meaning expressed in the Greek words that are used here. They're not antonyms. The writing isn't on the front and the back, and it isn't in front of and behind. It's on the front and behind. And I know that's subtle, but it might matter to us later. Also, thirdly, the scroll is sealed with seven seals. Now think about what a scroll usually looked like. Are we talking about a rolled up scroll with seven seals down the edge? Or are we talking about a scroll that is somehow rolled up and periodically sealed so that breaking one seal opens a portion of the scroll, but not all of it? Or is it actually a book and not a scroll at all? I don't know, but I believe whatever it is, the imagery must have made sense to John's first audience. We're going to talk about that more in a sec. Fourth, the scroll is of such a nature that only one who is worthy can open the seals and read what is written in it. Hmm, well, that's interesting. Fifth, an applied universal search reveals no one who is worthy to open the scroll. Sixth, John weeps that no one can open it. But why? I mean, why does John care so much? Why, why is it so important that the scroll be opened that it makes John weep? It must be something very special, something John once opened and read to make him weep. And finally, an angel assures John that all is well because the lamb is able to open the scroll. So with all of this stuff, what do we know about the scroll? Well, there are many disagreements about what this scroll is and what's written in it. And I could spend a lot of time talking about all the theories on this, but I won't. Instead, I'm just going to tell you what I think it is. So you know what my first question is going to be? Same First question I always ask, what, what would the first audience have heard? What would the original readers have heard? When they read about the scroll that had writing on the front and behind that was sealed with seven seals, what would they have thought? Well, 
This is actually a form of document they would have been familiar with. You see, scrolls were made of animal skins, and usually one side was scraped very smooth to be written on. Ancient wills and testaments, however, might have the text all written on the smooth side, but they could have a summary of the content written on the back, and it would be signed there by up to seven witnesses to validate its authenticity. This was like the first century equivalent of 256-bit SHA encryption. It proved the authenticity of a legal document. And I think this is the scroll we see in chapter 5. I believe it's the scroll of destiny. God had a plan for the redemption of this world, a plan which he prepared before he laid the foundation of the world. He made a plan, and that plan includes victory over sin and death and the forces of Satan, no matter how poorly that war seems to be going sometimes. This scroll contains the plan that God formed and the plan which he is bringing to fulfillment even now. We might even go so far as to say that this scroll is the last will and testament of God. I also believe that everything that happens after chapter 5 is subject to the scroll. The idea of the scroll as the last will and testament of our God means that God's plan and will for humanity is revealed in the images to come. God's not dying. That's not what we're saying. So to be his will, it would have to express his will for humanity. Get me? The scroll is therefore the scroll of the destiny of humankind. Moreover, the destiny of humankind was and is made possible and complete by the Lamb who was slain. He is the only one worthy to complete God's perfect plan for our redemption. He is the only one capable of opening the scroll, i.e. fulfilling and revealing God's plan to creation. If you've ever read about the book of Revelation, you know that it seems to get a little bit confusing beginning in chapter 6, right? The seven seals are opened from 6-1 through 8-1, and there are seven trumpets and two witnesses, a dragon and a woman, a war in heaven. It goes on and on. And how we interpret these events may depend in some small way on what we believe about this scroll. For example, if you believe that the scroll is the Lamb's book of life and that its contents are never revealed in this book, then you're free to make a wider interpretation of these upcoming passages. However, if you, like me, believe this is the scroll of destiny and that God's plan for humanity is revealed in opening the scroll, then your boundaries become a little narrower. I believe this is the scroll of destiny, and I believe that what we see and hear in the coming chapters must be interpreted as the revelation to John and the world about God's plan for humanity and his victory over Satan. This plan includes the suffering and sin of the world and God's triumph over that sin and its envoy in the world. It includes the redemption of all believers and their entry into eternal life with him in a new earth that he will bring about. Now, before we get to the imagery in the following chapters, we should square away chapter 5. What does chapter 5 really tell us? I mean, all we've done up to now is talk about the details of the chapter. It's time to put all of it together and hear the complete message. So we started this discussion by saying that there were three characters, so to speak, in chapter 5. The scroll of destiny, the lamb, and the worship. And the worship is focused on the lamb, and the lamb is focused on the scroll. But I think we ought to talk about the worship a little more, right? Chapter 5 is really all about the worship. When it appears that no one can open the scroll, John weeps. But when the lamb comes and opens the scroll, worship erupts. But why is the lamb worshipped? What about the lamb causes such adoration on the part of every living thing in heaven? Well, let's go back to our rock concert analogy, right? You ever been to one where you have thousands of people crowded into a hot, sweaty arena to worship a rock band? Now think about it for a minute. 
Why would someone go to a concert like this? The sound in these concerts is horrible. In order to build excitement and reach the back seats, the speakers are jacked up so high you can't really understand much of what you're hearing. It's just blaring cacophony of teeth-jarring, mind-blowing noise. So I don't think people go for the sound. And the people at these concerts are sweaty and smelly and intoxicated and pushing and shoving and swearing and singing and yelling. You don't go for the company. And there's a better than average chance that you might sustain a serious injury during one of these fiascos, so it's not for the comfort, right? Why go? Well, it's about the experience, right? I can listen to the music at home. I go to the concert for the experience of being there with those people, with the band, right? There's just something in our DNA. It makes us go to extreme lengths to worship, right? And maybe it is a DNA thing. Think about this. The Israelites never turned from Yahweh to nothing, but always to a false god. Even atheists worship something. You know, maybe it's science or themselves or independence from religion or all of the above. I think we're just creatures who worship. The entire focus of worship in chapter 5 is on the worthiness of the Lamb to open the scroll. We worship. It's what we do. But why? And I think that's a valid question. Well, the entire focus of worship in chapter 5 is on the worthiness of the Lamb to open the scroll. The four living creatures and the 24 elders all fall down before the Lamb and worship Him. The uncountable throng of angels sing that the Lamb who was slaughtered is worthy to receive power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. Every creature in heaven, on earth, in the sea, and under the earth praises the Lamb and the one seated on the throne. And why? Jesus is not worshipped because he's a cruel and vindictive tyrant who feeds on the fear of his subjects. He's not worshipped because we are unworthy, and yet he condescends to love us anyway. And he's not worshipped because we're bored and have nothing better to do. Jesus Christ is worshipped because he is worthy to be worshipped. The elders and the living creatures worship the Lamb because he's worthy to open the scroll. God's plan for humanity is brought to fulfillment in the Lamb who was slaughtered, and yet who lives. God's victory over sin and death is fulfilled in the Lamb who was slain, and yet who lives. The victory that is ours is assured in the Lamb who stands among the elders before the throne of God, and who is the only being in the universe worthy to open the scroll. They sing that the Lamb is worthy to open the scroll because he was slaughtered, and because by his blood the nations were ransomed to become a kingdom of priests serving God. What Jesus did in his death and resurrection was earn the right to disclose, complete, fulfill, and unfold the plan which God laid before the foundation of the world for the redemption of humankind. So many people are desperate to build an ology out of the book of Revelation. Okay, fine. How about this for an ology? How about building an ology around the fact that Jesus is worshipped precisely because he is worthy to be worshipped? Now, let me ask you a question. Why do you go to church on Sunday? And Okay, maybe this is a pre- and post-pandemic question. But when we were going to church, why do you go? Right? Maybe it's because you're lonely. Maybe you like your friends at church. Maybe it's guilt over sin. You know, you go to appease God or to find some absolution. Maybe it's simply routine. You know, you go to church because that's what you do on Sunday. Or maybe it's because that's what your parents did. So it's what you do. Look, all that's fine. But there is one big reason, an uber reason, 
the thing that really ought to drive us to church, and that's the fact that Jesus Christ is simply worthy to be worshipped. That's why we should go to church. Yes, we need each other. Yes, we need to continually refuel our spiritual batteries to make it through another week. Yes, there are a lot of little reasons to go, but the ultimate reason ought to be that we have such complete and utter devotion to one who is actually worthy to be worshipped. And we just need to worship him. Amen? I think that's what chapter 5 is calling us to. All right. I'm going to pray for you right now. And as always, I want you to be safe. I want you to keep your eyes on what you're doing and let your hearts pray with me. Father, we praise you. We praise you because you are worthy to be praised. We worship you because you are worthy to be worshipped. You are awesome. And you have bought us life. And we praise you. Lord, we all know that there's a lot of craziness going on in this world. We have social unrest and a divisive election. It's all happened during a global pandemic. It's mayhem out there. But in Revelation, Lord, you assure us that you have already won and that you are not out of control. And all we need to do is trust you and follow you. So, Lord, we ask you to keep us safe and healthy. Bless us and guide us in the way that we should go. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I will see you next time when we begin chapter 6 as the Lamb opens the seals. Peace.